Welcome to the Archive Room podcast, stories of Manx life in years gone by, told by the people who were there. Manx Radio. Faster my Judith Lay here, once again opening the door to the Archive Room, Manx Radio's treasure chest of stories of island life from years gone by, told by the people who were there. So, come on in, and let me take you for another gentle stroll down Manx memory lane. Music is, and always has been, a huge part of island life. So music and entertainment in general is going to be the theme of our stories over the next two editions of the programme. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you'd like to take your seats, please, the curtain is about to go up. And first on stage is Eva Kane, ably assisted by Master of Ceremonies, Mr David Collister. Looking at the Roy Hudd's Cavalcade of Variety Acts, and on page 92, under the letter K, it says, Eva Kane, Siffler's Lady Whistler and Soprano, born Isle of Man, 1923. And apart from a most melodious whistling routine of pop, she would then break into a coloratura vocal and usually stop the show. Her act was one of the first to be televised after the Second World War. Her family owned hotels on the Isle of Man, where, I believe, she retired. Well, she did, and here she is, and Eva Kane's with us. Eva, that brings back memories for you. That was from a very important TV show in your life, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was um, from Southport in the uh, the Flower Show week. And um, Diggy Afton, who was the producer of the show, had actually wanted me to do a special number. And he was telling us in Housedrake that he wanted something to be done specially for me from the Isle of Man. And Leslie Cerrone of the two Leslies was there at the time. And, of course, he wrote so many songs. And he wrote this for me in the lounge at Housedrake. Well, of course, Leslie Cerrone is a very, very big name in show business, wasn't he? Yes, he was. How did you persuade him to write the song for you, the Fairy Bridge song, then? didn't need any persuasion. Oh. He offered straight off. The strange part of it is that for all the songs and things that Leslie has written, he couldn't read a note of music and he couldn't play. Really? So we had to find somebody who would come and write it down as he sang it. And fortunately, Fred Callow, 
came and he played it for us and wrote it down so that it could be orchestrated. Fred Callow, of course, was brother of Henry Callow. Henry. Yes. yes. You started off the programme here with the Fairy Bridge song, as we heard, and you were whistling there. Now, when did that, that whistling start? Because that was the main part of your act, really, was it? Yes, it started um, when I was quite young, probably about 11 or 12. It actually started through Harriet Hart. She used to be our dance teacher with Doris Lothian, and she herself did a lot of whistling. And I tried it one day and found I could whistle and went on from there. Can you remember your first stage appearance then? My first stage appearance, I was only three at the Gaiety. That was in the days when the Alwyn School of Dancing was going and um, they did a, a show for the children, you know, rather like Christine Wilde does yes. nowadays. And I was in that. And then you went on to have a professional show business career, of course, didn't you? Yes. I made my first professional appearance at the Palace Theatre when I was eight with G.S. Melvin and Tom D. Newell in a sketch coming to the seaside where G.S. Melvin, who was a wonderful dame, was dressed as my mother... The, the other man was my father and they pushed us on in the pram and they had a little boy as well, a boy named Herbie Roberts and <laughs> there was quite a thing between Herbie Roberts and I because he found out that I was getting 12 and sixpence a week and he was only getting 10 shillings a week <laughs> and he said why did I get more money than he did? I said because when they wanted two children for this sketch they said they wanted a nice little girl and a horrid little boy <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if you remember this lady Has anybody Kelly from the Isle of Man. Florrie Ford was a great friend of our family. You've seen her singing that song, I suppose, oh, a few times. Oh, yes. It used to be wonderful at the um, Derby Castle because she would come out in this magnificent dress and huge picture hats, and then she'd sing whichever song it was, and then she went off when the applause started. They played one chorus of the song that she had just sung, and she came straight back on completely changed to another wonderful gown and another big hat to sing the next song. And you say that she became a friend of the family. You became quite intimately involved with her and other showbiz people, of course. Oh, yes. You? She used to come up every night to Falcon Cliff. But you've been involved with so many people in show business. I'm, I'm quite amazed at some of the names you've been uh, telling me about. Well, we go back a long time in our family. Uh, my father was in the theatre before me, of course, and my son follows on. So we're three generations of theatre folk. All the big stars played at the Derby Castle, didn't they? They did. And, they and was, did. It always, was it always sort of quick-fire quick varieties, they called it? Yes, it? yes. And then, um, of course, they used to come over, some of the bigger stars used to come over for a Sunday night at the palace, mm -hmm. but that was more um, music and then one big star 
the likes of um, Alan Jones. Alan Jones came over for two or three times and he always came up to stay with us. And um, one year when he found I was going for pantomime in Warrington, he offered to loan me his big trailer, which he had standing at Mere Golf Club. And he had it towed over to Warrington. And we lived in this tremendous caravan, which had never been seen like that over in these days. You know, Mm. it was all American things then. And the Alan Jones that Eva Kane is talking about here is none other than the fine singer who is probably best remembered for one of his biggest commercial successes, the Donkey Serenade. But let's get on with our show, as David Collister asks Eva Kane about the Falcon Cliff Hotel. It was where Eva was born and grew up, and so it gave her ready access to lots of visiting celebrities. Mentioning there the Falcon Cliff Uh, That was the hotel, I suppose, that became the showbiz hotel on the island, did it? Most of the stars stayed with us, yes. I was born there, of course. So this is how I got to know an awful lot of the show business people, the likes of Wilson Keppel and Betty. And it was the original Betty that stayed with us, Betty Knox. And when she retired, her daughter came in, Patsy Knox took over as Betty, And uh, there was one occasion I remember particularly when Joe Keppel got really upset because Wilson was putting on too much weight and he was beginning to look healthy. They were supposed to be, you know, terribly thin, doing their sand dance. Wonderful, absolutely. What a remarkable lady, sharing with David Collister such clear memories of the big music hall stars of the 1930s and 40s who could be found on stage on the island and staying at the Falcon Cliff Hotel, where Eva Kane grew up. We'll hear more of Eva's memories in a future programme. But we're going now from Music Hall to Music Festival and joining Bernie Quayle to meet a very talented lady with strong links to our Manx Music Festival, the Guild. We're going back to the 1920s now to hear about Noah Moore, who competed successfully in the Guild a number of times with his Douglas Ladies Choir. He also sang in the Guild as a solo competitor and often battled against his brother, Appeal Headmaster. In the year 1914, he was one of the few Guild competitors who met with the approval of visiting adjudicator Sir Edward Elgar. In that same year, 1914, an eight-year-old girl was running around the household of Noah Moore. It was his daughter, Nora, and we join her now in the company of Bernie Quayle. Nora Moore was 86 when this conversation was recorded. Nora, it must have been a wonderful experience growing up in such a musical household. Oh, it was. It was lovely because my mother had a lovely voice too and my brother, he was musical. He could play the piano. He had lessons, of course, but he played by ear mostly and he played the violin. So I used to play the piano for him. There was always music in some form or other, pupils or someone coming or going. And then when my father became manager of Villa Marina, great artists were engaged for Sunday concerts and we met them all and it was all so interesting and a lovely concert. And when I look back now and think that the dearest seats were about two shillings and now they're about six pounds or something like that, he knew I had a voice but he never wanted it to be forced, never believed in that. So I didn't have lessons. 
I went into the guild once or twice as a young girl, but when I got to about 16, I think, or 17 it must have been, my father decided that I should compete for the Bourne Manx Scholarship, which you have to go to London for, and he taught me songs to sing, and I went to London, and I was awarded the Manx Scholarship, and I had three years tuition at the Royal Academy of Music. And curiously enough, I started learning with the man who had taught my father originally, Sir Edward Isles. So I was with him for a while, and he was interested in me, and that I could play the piano too. That was something they didn't always get. And I used to play for some of his pupils, and I used to do concerts with another pupil who sang in costume and I used to play the spinet for her. Then, of course, I started having auditions for jobs. It wasn't easy. I had an audition for the Dorling Cart for the Sadler's Wells Opera, and I chose Sadler's Wells Opera. And um, I was there for quite a few years, and I was in the BBC in Leslie Woodgate's choir, and I had a wonderful experience there, most unheard of, we were practicing one day, and a message came through from a gramophone studio where Sir Thomas Beecham was rehearsing an opera, and his soprano, she was Italian, they were all Italian artists, she had taken ill, and he said, have you got a singer who can read Italian or speak Italian and can read music and could take this place and come to the rehearsal? And he chose me. That was a thrill that I'd never forget. It was a wonderful rehearsal with all these Italians and Sir Thomas Beecham. You recall some of the, the famous stars that appeared in the Villa Marina. Peter Dawson I sang with, Paul Robeson. Paul Robeson at the Villa? Oh yes, Paul Robeson was twice at Villa Marina. And funnily enough, in London later, I was going to a concert. I was waiting on a railway station for a train, and I saw him up the platform. And I went up and spoke to him, and he said, Oh, you shouldn't speak to me. I'm coloured, you know. I said, Paul Robeson. You would never say that. I read very sad stories about that aspect of Paul Robeson yes. because being an American, they were really very badly segregated over there, weren't yes, they? Yes, they were. And yet he was a very clever man, you know. He wasn't just a singer. He'd been a lawyer. And he had a beautiful voice. Nora, we looked a moment ago at your first major contract when you were with Sadler's yes. Wells. That was 1933, but can you tell me that you spent a lot of time during the war years working with the Red Cross. Yes, I did. I did what I could there. I had, you get a sort of training, and you go out to the hospitals and help. But I sang to the troops, and uh, and I went to the sick and sang. And but during the war, you came back, and you continued your service for the Red Cross here on the island. Yes, I did. I came back, and I, I was in the Red Cross here, and... Um, I used to go to the, the um, hospitals here to... The, the Majestic was the hospital that they had the men in here, and I went, very often went there, and when I was there, I always sang, and always sang. Nora, you were very fortunate in having someone as 
uh, as great as your father, to coach you. Yes. Now, you took up coaching and training of singers. Yes. Now, I know that you, you're not practicing that today, but a word of advice now for, yes. for young people who really want to make a career in singing. Yes. What sort of advice would you give them? Well, I would say, don't try to force your voice and don't try things that you know are, are beyond you. I would try and get with a teacher, if possible. I could probably sing, but no, I wouldn't risk it. You've got lovely memories, though. Lovely memories, yes. Nora Moore, daughter of Noah Moore, sharing her memories of a lifetime in music with Bernie Quayle. And our final guest on stage tonight starts a fascinating story that we'll be continuing in next week's programme. The name of Douglas Buxton is legendary in the island's music world, and it all really started when he bumped into Noah Moore outside the Villa Marina one day. But let's add a little bit of background. Douglas Buxton was born into a musical family. He grew up in the early 1900s in a world of pierrots and seaside entertainment. Run by Dougie's father, Buxton's pierrot shows were a huge success. Then came the First World War and took it all away. Around 1919, Dougie's father became seriously ill, and despite the doctor's best efforts, he died. We join the story when Dougie is around 18 years old. The year is 1920, and Dougie and his sister Mildred are trying to restart Buxton's Piero shows. We did start the Piero's in, in uh, Ramsey on 1919-1920, and my, my sister Mildred... She was a soubrette in the show, and I was sort of front of the house manager. But that was a job for the summer, and I was at a loose end on, on uh, in the winters, and I happened to meet Normore outside the, the villa, talking, and he said, can you sing? Have you, have you ever... I said, no, not since I was a lad. Well, he said, well, get the, the Guild song. Let's have a look at it, see what it's like. So I bought this song, uh, Landon Ronald's Deep in the Heart of a Rose, it was called. Anyway, I got this song, and uh, they put me in for the guild. And uh, the, the adjudicator, I can't just think of his name, but he, did, he was a famous name. His father was a famous teacher and taught Lily Pons and all these great singers. And he was a teacher in London, and he was the adjudicator. He was quite a big class, about 20 in it, and he said uh, to the audience, you might be surprised, but I picked out a young man that I see great promise in. And uh, he, he gave me the first first prize you see and I was the youngest man in the class so we were talking to him I said well what do you think about taking music up as a career so mother took me to to Manchester to the Royal Manchester College of Music saying managed to get an interview I took me one song <laughs> and uh, they accepted me as a student so I burned my boats then little did I think what I'd put myself in for I I hadn't had a wonderful education. As, as a lad, I wasn't very strong. Uh, and uh, when I was about seven or eight, I, I had to be sent away where I didn't know anybody. I was sent to, to uh, Heaner in Derbyshire and uh, with, with a couple of miners. I'd, I lived with them and uh, I had St Vitus dance and all sorts of things, you know. So I uh, came back and I started at, at a private school, Miss Green's in Derby Square. And uh, I was there for two or three years. Of course, the, the war came on and we were 
tossed about from one place to another. We went to live in Hina, and that's when I did a little bit of singing. There was a, a, a picture of Nurse Cavell. Remember Nurse Cavell? Uh, uh, and there was a picture of it, and I sang a song every every night. She was the angel of mercy, you know. So that was the only singing I'd, I'd done prior to that. But here I was going to be a professional singer. I'd never seen an opera in my life. I'd never been to hear a, an orchestra in my life. And my type of singing was more of the concert party style of singing, you see. I told you, I hadn't very much of an education. I'd done, uh, uh, after, after we, I left my screens, I went to the, the um, grammar school in Dalton Street. You remember the, the old school in Dalton Street uh, where uh, Monsieur Bartholomew was the headmaster? And there we only used to do reading, writing, and arithmetic, you see. So I know when we went to Hina, I, I went to a wonderful school there where they did chemistry and maths and God knows what. Uh, I, I never, it, it frightened the life out of me. So here I am, I'm going to start at college. I've never seen an orchestra or anything in my life before. I had to learn uh, history of music theory of music, um, counterpoint, harmony, uh, languages, French, Italian, German, opera class, uh, elocution, you name it, I had to do it. <laughs> and uh, it was just all absolute double dutch to me. When The first opera I ever went to see in Manchester was Parsifal. Of all operas, I mean, it's so advanced, you see, and I honestly couldn't make head and a tail of it. I thought, well, if this is what I've put myself in for, heaven help me. And then the next one I saw was Peleus and Melisander, which was just as bad. A man and a woman sat over over a top of a well, and they sang for about an hour and a quarter, with not a solo in it, you know. So anyway... The aim of all singers at a college, of course, is to become professional singers. You, you, you look to be operatic singers, you see. And uh, after I'd been there a year or two, I, I started taking engagements and singing around the north of England. I, I got in with a, a Methodist group and uh, I did a number of Messiahs and Elijahs and creations and things like that and uh, was doing quite nicely. Uh, my other brother was was going to to the Liverpool starting at the Liverpool University, so I felt I had to come home, and uh, uh, let him go to university. You see, so I came home, and that's how I started teaching. Never thinking I was going to make a teacher at all, but anyway, I started in the Isle of Man, uh, uh, doing a bit of teaching, and every Monday I went back to college, and. Uh, back again on the Wednesday and back home teaching, you see. It, there were no planes in those days, of course, and it became a little bit dicey. For a, If I took a job in England, it meant three days. And in the end, it, it got that uh, the, the singing was taking second place and teaching was becoming my forte, you see. There'll be more from Dougie Buxton as he recalls wonderful choirs and singers in the Isle of Man at the same time next week.
that's where we close the archive room door for another week, with my thanks to storytellers Eva Kane, Nora Moore and Douglas Buxton. And of course, thanks to David Collister and Bernie Quayle, who first gathered together all these wonderful stories, and to Manx Radio's present-day archivist, Tim Price, for his help. And we'll be returning to the story of Douglas Buxton and other musical gems on next week's programme, so I do hope you'll join me once again as I open the door to the archive room just after six next Thursday evening, or listen at your leisure to the podcasts of this series. Go to manxradio.com and search for The Vault. There you'll find all available episodes of the archive room and lots more from the Manx Radio Store of Nostalgia. But for now, this is Judith saying thank you for listening and, well, just in case you're struggling to work out who's doing our vintage sign-off, here's a slightly longer version for you this week. And yes, I will tell you who he is, but not until the end of the series. I'll be with you next week at the same time. So long, yes, sir. Station, Manx Way